All right. Thanks for coming back. If you've not heard part one, go do that now. This will make a whole lot more sense if you do that. All right. Here's part two. He is on, he's gone. So I get on the radio. I tell him I just got in a shooting, uh, gave him suspect description, gave him a couple of digits of his plate, uh, direction of travel. And here's where it gets interesting. So I get a couple of officers come up. Um, they roll up on the scene. These are detectives I know from Metro Gangs. Um, are these friendly ones to you? Are these oh, these, some are, these are, are friendly. These are okay. cop cops. Yeah, okay. so I had this one. I think it was uh, Matt Larson. He's since committed suicide. He uh, rolls up on me, and he's all concerned about me because yeah. they don't know if I've been shot or the suspect's been shot. Right. So they're, they're trying to work it out, and... Um, I just say, look, I'm fine. Go get him. This is where he went. So he goes after him. Another cop rolls up. He does the same, goes after him. Then I had a female officer show up. Uh, she's now a lieutenant with Salt Lake City named Lisa Piscadlo. And, uh, you know, she's a, she's a good cop. She rolls up and straight away she's like, sit down, Rob. You need to sit down and <laughs> right. we need to call the, the paramedics, the ambulance. And you, you're, you're not doing too well. And I had adrenaline you know, Can you feel anything? Do you know that you just went through hell, basically? Uh, just that I'm exhausted. Okay. And I really don't know what just happened. And the adrenaline is there. So I have zero pain. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm really kind of clouded as to what happened. So she sits me down. She calls for the ambulance, uh, clarifies stuff with, the, with dispatch, watch command, tells them, you know, I'm not shot, but I appear to be injured and uh, send the paramedics. So then I'm sitting on the sidewalk. She goes and talks to the watch commander. He rolls up there. She doesn't know anything. I really haven't told her anything, just that you know, some guy tried to kill me, run me down, I shot him. There's no really physical evidence at the scene because he's gone. My police car's there. There's some uh, shell casings. There's like 11 casings. My gun held 18 rounds, so it's not like I unloaded my gun. Right. And there's glass from the window where my body went through. That's all. You can't tell anything from that without analyzing the skid marks and everything. Right. So she goes and talks to this watch commander. And then she, he gets on the phone. The watch commander gets on the phone. And uh, this, this guy's Lieutenant Zalig. Not the most competent cop. Um, but anyway, she hears him talking on the phone. And she hears it's a bad shoot. And oh, take care of it, you know, and so without seeing anything, without, just without talking it. to me with just my police car, okay. the guy's not apprehended. Nobody's seen the vehicle. There's some glass and shell casings. I'm a little bit beat up. I have glass chads all stuck to the back of my pants. Uh, I'm scuffed up in my legs and there's really nothing. And mm -hmm. remember, I haven't spoken to anyone and he's on the phone talking to somebody we later believed it was one of the administrative assistant chiefs that was giving the, the directives. Mm. And so when he said it's a bad shoot, we believe that he was just repeating what he was told. And so and this is from one of the ones that kind of has it out for you at this no, point? No, no. I never had a bad dealing with this, oh. this guy. So this, okay. this all comes down to what I believe was the marching orders from Didi Cordini to take out the next officer. And because of my involvement in criticizing the chief, being on the know with him being wanting to be the mayor, me criticizing him on the, on the KSL triad shooting of Ann Slater. Um, and I, I'm kind of dangerous at that point because right. I'm in the know with the media because I was doing PIO work, which is public information. I was 
reporting on homicide cases to the media Mm -hmm. on behalf of the department. I was also the police coordinator, tech advisor for the city uh, in with movies. So I'm in this place where I have a little bit of a little juice. Yeah, a little bit of juice. So Mm -hmm. I, I think maybe that was the perfect opportunity to fulfill two functions. So then she comes back to me, this uh, Lisa Pascadlo, she comes back to me and she says, you need to talk to me later because I heard him say it's a bad shoot. And she's mm-hmm. like, I haven't even talked to you. And so then what happens is the ambulance comes. I get in the back of the ambulance. I'm getting ready to go to the hospital because I don't really know what's happened, but I've got to get x-rayed. I know I got hit in the leg. I'm bruised from the knees down. I was also bruised from the knee up, all up my hip where I had landed. Oh, yeah. I later, I later found out that I compressed two of my vertebrae permanently. So, uh, so I really didn't know what was going on. But I'm in the back of the ambulance. I'm getting ready to go to the hospital. This watch commander, Zalig, comes out. And he's like, hey, can you step out of, the, out of the ambulance for a second? So I step out of the ambulance, and he starts to question me. Well, we generally don't do that. Right uh, after. After. No, you, you yeah. have a union rep. Uh, you don't get your gun removed from you at the scene. You have to have a gun returned to you. So if he was going to take my gun, he would replace it immediately. That's, that's just under the protocol for shootings, critical incident shootings. It's a policy. Okay. You don't disarm the officer. You make sure he has a gun if you're taking possession of the gun. Well, he starts questioning me. I tell him, hey, you know, I made a stop. Uh, I tried to get him out of the vehicle. He hit me going backwards. And in the process, I shot him. I you know, thought he was going to kill me. And then he took off. And so he takes my gun leaves me disarmed. I turn around to get in the ambulance to go to the hospital, and it's gone. So you don't know he took it until you get in? No, he, 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 I gave him Oh, the you gun. gave it to him. Okay. So then I'm like, are we done? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, you're going to have to come down the station. I go, okay. I've asked for a union rep. A union rep rolls up. I turn around to get in the ambulance because I want to go to the hospital. Yeah. I want to get x-rays. Well, <laughs> right. the ambulance is left. So I, I didn't sign a release. I have to, you have to sign a medical release. Everybody signs a medical release. So I'm an officer involved in a critical incident. I need to go to the hospital. And before they can leave, I need to sign a release that I refuse to go or service, that I'm fine. Right. They're gone. I didn't sign a release. Why did they leave? Is it because the... I have no idea, right? You can stop, guy that you can stop putting gun? it all together yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Okay. All right. So then I go over to... Um, back to the to the uh, watch commander, and then he tells me that I'm being taken to the station. So I'm like, okay, and then I'm hearing on the radio, they're chasing this dude. Uh, He tried ramming through, like, barricades with the sheriff's department, and then finally they got him stopped in an apartment complex. So now they're taking him into custody. I hear all this happening, and um, so I'm thinking, okay, well, they got the guy. So I'm getting in the police car to go to the station, and uh how how long after are they did they stop him it was about 20 minutes oh okay so not long he, they chased him all along the east, east bench but um so i'm getting ready to get in the car and i'm asking you know if crime lab's coming so they can take pictures of me which you would do right and um i was told that crime lab was not needed they sent them away okay very unusual very unusual right. so they sent them away and now i'm getting in a police car i'm asking for photographs of my injuries Mm-hmm. that's not happening. I get in a police car. I go to the station. I walk upstairs. I'm asking while I'm going up there, can we get somebody to take some photos, you know, because I understand evidence. I got glass 
stuck in my pants. My uniform's all scuffed up. Yeah. So these are things that I need to have. And um, what is your rep saying at this point? Is he there? Or yeah, she? my my rep is there. He's telling me um, to not make statements. Okay. Um, and just we're going to get an attorney. And so I end up walking in. I ask for the crime lab again. I'm told they're not they're not there. They're busy. I go. What could they be doing? This is an officer-involved shooting. Like, this is the incident yeah. that you need crime lab. Well, it turns out they were sent by the homicide division sergeant to the termination point where the guy was apprehended, and they were asked to diagram the parking lot. It didn't happen in? Yeah, it didn't happen in. It's just where he parked <laughs> the car, right? It's just where he was stopped. Okay. So it has zero evidentiary value. There's, right. there's more to that story. Um, as far as the crime lab telling me they took about 352 photos of the vehicle while it was in their possession at the termination point, which were later seized by the homicide division and were taken out of the evidence. They disappear. They disappear. Well, the, crime, the, the homicide division had them, but crime lab oh, didn't okay. have them. And okay. they even took the negatives because I was taken down the stairs to the basement by crime lab later saying, you need to see these photos, and all the, all the negatives were gone. So there, there are just a number of things that were really odd. Right. So now I get some detective come up, and he uses a Polaroid camera to take some pictures. They didn't even really come out. I mean, you could see some bruising. <laughs> and then I'm like, you got to document my uniform. But then I walk, start walking to a room where I realize that it's full. It's fully staffed. There's like captains of investigations, assistant chiefs, internal affairs. They're pretty much assembled within a matter of half an hour. And they're in this room. Oh, and that's weird. That's, that's not normal. That's quick. That's yeah, pretty quick. Okay. So on the way to going into the room, uh, a, a chief, Larry Stott, who later went to BYU as the chief down there, uh, he pulls me aside and he's like, Rob, do not talk to anyone. And I'm looking at him like, what are you talking about, man? So right. He goes, do not talk to anyone. He goes, you're going to have to, I'm going to have to order you to write a basic statement. Um, he says, but do not provide a lot of information. Just be very general. It's, it's a thing we had with the department at the time they were ordering us to give a statement, even though it was against our constitutional rights and policy, they were just asserting themselves to make us do it. Hmm. So he's like, I'll help you do it. Write a statement. Let me look at it. Do not save it in the system. And I'll make sure that you're protected. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Yeah. So then I just kind of walk away from him, go in the office. First thing I get is confronted by uh, a Captain Denker, who's over investigations, and she just asked me straight up, were you on the roof of the car? And I said, yes, I was. And she goes, let me see your shirt. So I hold up my right arm, and you could see where the pattern had, it, it was damage to my shirt from sitting up on the roof. Mm -hmm. And she goes, oh, that matches the pattern on the roof. So then she instructed the homicide detective to take my shirt. So he took the shirt, which later disappeared. Um, the shirt disappeared. Yeah, the shirt disappeared. So then I'm like, well, my pants are all scuffed up, and, you know, I got glass shards in my pants, and can we please get crime lab here? And that never happened, and, you know, thankfully they didn't take my pants too. But <laughs> So they asked me a bunch of questions, and it was all more evidentiary. Mm -hmm. And they said, did you have your gun in your hand when you're on the roof? And I said, yes. And I go, oh, and they kind of motioned, looking at each other, consistent with my arm dragging off the roof as I was coming off. So all of those pieces of evidence were already present. Okay. So then I, I'm in there for a short time. I walk out. I start writing this report up. It's pretty generic. You know, I made a traffic stop. Thought the guy might 
might have been drunk or having some type of uh, psychotic episode by the manner in which he was frailing around. But realizing later that he was probably just distracting me and I tried to get him out of the vehicle when he went in reverse and through the process I shot him or shot at him and then I was dumped on the roadway and left. And so this chief Stodd looked at the report and he goes, yeah, that's good. So let's just save it. Then he bought me a gun, loaded it all up for me, gave it to me. And then I was taken back to my police car, which was parked on the streets where, where it was from the incident. Mm-hmm. I think it was like four or five hours later. Um, but I didn't get to drive my car home. I had an officer who's like, well, you just come with me. I'll drive your car just so you get your car home. So we ended up getting home. And then I'm, I'm thinking, you know, things, things are okay. I'm not real concerned about the questions they had or in the, the, some of the things I was hearing. But it was like the next, I think, I had to give a, a formal statement within three, four days. Um, and then I was questioned by a couple of homicide guys and asked different things, and they go, well, did you shoot this way, did you shoot that way? And I'm like, dude, it happened in like three seconds. I'm going backwards at 25 miles an hour. I know I shot 11 rounds, because that's what you guys told me I shot. And I'm thinking, the rounds are all in this general area from the front door to the quarter panel, because I'm falling to the ground while I'm shooting. And And I said, I know the glass was broken, because that's where the slow motion stuff took place, where I could actually turn my face and see the glass shards and casings kind of spinning around in the air right in front of my face. Oh, wow. So uh, anyway, all this was happening, and that's when I, the crime lab guys pulled me aside and said, come down here, you got to see this, and all the, all the photos were gone, negatives were gone. And, um, you know, and they told me, I took 352 photos of that vehicle. Where are they? And then I think it was um, about two, three weeks, and I get called to go to the station, and so I head up to the station, and um, I get told that the chief's meeting with me. I kind of had a feeling, so I walk in there, and I was pretty much surrounded by a bunch of cops and the chiefs, and they asked me if I was armed, and I said yes. And they're like, where's your gun? I'm like, the small on my back. And they go, well, don't touch it. Just leave it there, and we'll retrieve it. And so they retrieved my gun. Has this ever happened? Anything like No. Okay. No, this was this was pretty surreal. So I'm thinking it's this is a clean shoot. I was fighting for my life. I mean, I, I don't think that it's any cleaner than that. Do you have any indication at all up to this point? This is two weeks later. Do you have any indication that anything's funny about well, what yeah, you're I'm doing? Start, I'm starting to feel it. Okay. I'm starting to feel it. So I almost had a foreboding that something was not right and something was gonna happen. Okay. So they disarm me, then they're um, then things happened really fast. Uh, the chief didn't come in. Only the executive assistant chiefs were there. They're like, okay, Rob, this is what's going to happen. We're taking you to jail. They're taking you to jail. They're taking me to jail. What? Yeah. What's going through your head at that point? Uh, it was, it was uh, I wished I would have worn my uniform, but um, <laughs> it was pretty surreal. So I turn around to let him handcuff me, and, and there, the sergeant steps in and goes, no, no, no. We're going to walk you out of the station. Once we get you down in the car, we'll put the handcuffs on. So they just, this homicide Sergeant Mendez and then this uh, DA investigator Bartlett escort me through the building and everybody, I mean, every, the place is full. Everybody's looking at me being paraded through the building. What is going on? Yeah. So I get taken all the way downstairs and put into a police car. They didn't handcuff me in the car. They drove me to the jail 
I guess they cleared the floor, locked it down, um, took me in the front, uh, in the, yeah, through the sally port, and um, I walk in, and there's these sliding doors, so there's like a area, holding area between, so you can't actually just walk in. There's one door will open, then there's all these uh, keyboards and computer banks where you kind of type in, you know, this is the arrest, and then once you've done that, you get into the next section. So oh, okay. we walk in there. Uh, as we're walking in, he's like, I've got a handcuff. You're taking you into the jail. So I get handcuffed, and I walk in there with him, and this sergeant, homicide guy, been on 20 years or whatever, he didn't know how to book anyone in the jail. So he's sitting there talking with the investigator from, from the county, from the DA's office, about logging in, me being the smartass. I back up handcuffed to the terminal and I lean up on there and go push shift five and I do it. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm basically booking myself into evidence and this Sergeant Mendez doesn't realize that I'm like jerking his chain, but this Bartlett investigator, he realizes and he basically pushes me, palms me aside and says, we'll take care of it. Cause he realizes I'm now fucking with these guys. Right. So then they booked me through that process. Then we go into the jail, and a lieutenant came out, and he gave some commands to some of the guys working the floor and just said, hey, this is one of ours. You take care of him. So, uh, you know, I'm in the jail two or three times a day when I was a cop in the city. Um, and so they all knew who I was. And so, I, you know, they take my shoes off, my belt. They clear out my, clo my, my clothes. They start patting me down. Then I get taken into uh, an area where they're doing the photographs and fingerprinting, and it's like a little back room, and all these deputies stop filing in. They're like, hey, Joseph, what's going on? What's going on? I go, hey, I was that cop, you know, three weeks ago. Right. Got in that shooting, and they're charging me for, like, attempted murder, right? And they're just like, no way. So they're processing me. Um, the city and the county, the DA's officer, insisting that I be held, that I'm not bailing out. Um, oh, so they won't give you bail? No, so basically but what happened is the sheriff's department just stepped in and goes, no, we were not requiring bail. So I'm getting released within 20 minutes of my own recognizance. So oh, okay. they're, they're taking care of me. Everybody's thinking there's something up. I something mean, weird going The on, news right? up to that point was all officer fighting for his life, shoots a guy trying to run him over, officer's injured, whatever. It's, yeah. it's pretty straightforward. So then I'm in there, and they're telling me, well, we're going we're gonna to take you home. And I'm like, you know what? Screw you. My wife's coming to get me. And they're like, well, we're just going to walk you out the back, Rob, because we just want to, like, avoid the media. So they end up walking me out the back door, and they're all set up. The press is there. They've got the podium. They're all Are set. Oh, this was a setup. The chief had put out a bulletin calling me a dirty cop that he wasn't going to put up with dirty cops, that they were going to police their own. What? And they basically scapegoated me and threw me under the bus without anybody really looking at the evidence. Oh. So I get confronted by all of this media, and um, I just no comment. I'm just walking out. I jump in my car with, with my wife, um, and we just go home. So I get home. I'm thinking... Okay, I'll just let me just get home and I'll be okay. Well, the media is at my door at home. Oh, no. Somebody gave him my address. So probably the chief. Probably somebody from the police yeah. department. So now they're there. And what what really struck me was Marcus Ortiz from Channel Four. 
good guy, great reporter. He grabs me and he's just like, Rob, Rob, talk to me, you know, and I don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah. And he just says to me, he goes, you're being scapegoated. Everybody thinks you're being scapegoated. And he's like, are you being scapegoated? And I, I'm like, I don't know. And then he throws the Jim Christiansen murder. From goes, the Olympics. From the Olympic scandal. And he goes, you know, you know something about that. He was murdered, wasn't he? They covered it up. And I, I just didn't say anything. He's putting everything together. He's starting of. to put it together. Okay. He, he was pretty clued on from the way they handled it, mm-hmm. uh, how the department really went after me. And the chief was so adamant doing these press conferences uh, where he was not going to put up with it and he runs a clean department. Well, you know, because he wants to be mayor. And he wants to, they want to discredit me from anything that I might say that could hurt him or the city. So I'm so is this their way of silencing you? This you is think? I'm a dirty cop, so nobody's going to listen so to this a dirty is, cop. Okay, this so. is to get you out of the picture, basically. Okay. So he he Marcus puts this together that this is motivated, politically motivated. So um, I go through this process. Uh, it's interesting. The car disappears. My uniform disappears. The car even disappears. Photos too. are gone. All of these things. So I ended up finding the car down the road by watching a news report. Where the kid that I shot, he lived, you know, thankfully. I, I mean, I didn't want to have to kill somebody. Yeah. Um, he lived. So here he is doing this PR bit with the news where he's pointing at the bullet holes, sticking his finger in the holes. It's in a body shop. It appears to be a body shop. And he's like, this cop was trying to kill me. I didn't do anything. You know, the fact that he was 3.7, more than three times the legal limit of alcohol, that he had drugs in his system he had no driver's license he was speeding no insurance um the vehicle was not registered and he had warrants out for his arrest which were drug and having sex with an underage girl so this is the clean guy that he's the hero he's of the, the story hero of the day <laughs> that you know got got confronted by this dirty cop that just wanted to kill him he said yeah. you know to the news i didn't do anything to him he just started shooting at me oh, you know if he if he should have just like come to my house and arrested me but no he just had to shoot me in the street so he says all this plays to the media plays to the city's propaganda yeah and but i'm looking at this vehicle and i'm like hang on a second I'm being charged with attempted murder. Where's the vehicle? So I go to my attorneys and I tell my attorneys and my attorneys are all ex-cops, ex-federal agents that jumped on this. We'll do whatever we can to help you. You got screwed. We know this case is bad. So basically I tell them, they go to the court, they get a judge to order that the vehicle be released to me and my team so we can analyze it. We ask for photographs. We ask for crime lab reports. We don't get anything. So they defy the judge's order. So I took it upon myself, and I called the body shop. And it was a body shop in Midvale. I recorded a couple of conversations with this guy. He was not out there. He had nothing to hide, so he wasn't disclosing anything. I said, hey, I understand you have this vehicle. Who's paying for the repair? And he goes, well, we have a, we have a contract with the county. So I go, so the county's repairing the vehicle. And he's like, yeah. And I says, well, this vehicle's evidence. You can't repair the vehicle. He goes, I'm just doing what I'm told. And I have all this recorded. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there going, do not repair that vehicle. And he's like, I'm just doing what I'm told. And I said, well, look, if just in case you start repairing the vehicle, can you at least keep the quarter panel where a number of the bullet holes are in so that we can maintain some type of custody of evidence? And he said, no, no, I, I was told to weld you know, lead weld the holes. And I'm like, nobody does that. 
Nobody does that today. So it all just seemed really strange. Yeah. So at the same time, I've got peace officer standards and training calling me, and they're now investigating me. And I tell them, like, what are you doing? You know, I, where's the evidence? Where's my uniform? Where's the photos? Where's the crime lab report? And by the way, the car's in a body shop in Midvale. You cannot try to take away my peace officer certification. And it's so early on, right? I've just literally weeks after being arrested. And they're just like, we will just rely on the city's report. And I am sitting there going, no, 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 no. You cannot do that. You right. cannot rely. You have to do an independent evaluation. So he ends up, this uh, investigator, Zadunij, with Post, calls the body shop and says, hold the vehicle. We need to check this out. Um, but obviously they weren't intending to do anything. But in the meantime, my attorneys went back to the judge. And the judge said, if that vehicle is not delivered by this time, you're in contempt. And they're going to hold the sergeant from homicide personally responsible. So basically what happens is they now get orders to have the vehicle. That morning I get called to the chief's office. He's not there, but the executive assistant, Roy Wasden's there. He sits me down in an office. I record the conversation, obviously. And in that, he tells me how we're friends. And I need to take one for the team. What? Yeah, he says, you know, as a favor, Rob, as a favor, will you just kind of go along with this? Uh, as in go to jail? Well, and he, said, he said to me, he says, look, we'll, we'll get the charges dropped. I, get, I want you to just kind of don't admit it. to it. Okay. Don't fight it. We'll get the charges dropped. And he said, and we'll go so far as to let you go work in another law enforcement agency, but you just can't work here. And he, he says, we're friends. <laughs> and, I, and I'm looking at him and I'm like, I would rather sit and rot in jail than confess to something I didn't do. Yeah. And then he turned around and said, well, Rob, it's all on how much your family can take. When you've had enough, you come back and we'll make a deal. And I'm like, how do you make a deal after this? And he said, we can rescind anything. What? This is all on tape. And it's been admit it had been admitted into court and unopposed. So I end up getting told that I'm being terminated that very moment because I wouldn't go along with the deal. So after you refuse. After I refuse. He says you're gone. I'm gone. But the interest, yes, yeah, so that's the interesting thing. So then I leave there, and I head over to the Salt Lake County Sheriff's facility where they've just received possession of the vehicle. And I walk over there. Did the body shop, did they get rid of anything? Or they, didn't still... they didn't touch okay. it. They didn't touch it, yeah. I, I think I created enough alarm that they were concerned about right. it. Right, okay. So I get to the Sheriff's facility, um, and this, this Sergeant Mendez is there. This is the guy that whitewashed the Christiansen case, too, by the way. Oh, okay. This is, the, this is the guy that whitewashed the AT&T shooting. This, this is the same guy, right? Yeah. Um, so he does all that, and he's there. I walk up. He's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm here with my attorneys. I have a ballistic ex expert who was a former AG investigator. We're taking possession of the vehicle. And he goes, you're not welcome here. You're not a cop anymore. And I looked at him, and I'm like, how do you know I'm not a cop anymore? I only just left the chief's office five minutes ago. Oh. He goes, you're not a cop anymore. You're not welcome. Well, this detective, Steve Taylor, comes out, and I knew him. He comes out, and he's a 
accident reconstruction expert. That's what he does for the county. He puts all this ballistics and stuff together. Mm-hmm. He comes out and he goes, this is our facility. And the guy that was the head of the facility comes out and says, yeah, he's welcome here. Come on in, Rob. So I just walk in there. I see the vehicle for the first time with my team. And it's like, holy shit. What do you see? I see everything as I believed it was. I see everything as I explained it to the police that I was on the door, on the roof, going down, shooting from the ground up. What's interesting about that is this first detective, his name was Mark Shaman, never had any issues with Mark Shaman. He actually backed me up a couple of times on calls as a homicide detective. They don't generally do that, but he saw me out, probably knew that I was kind of a mover and shaker, always getting into things. So he stopped one time, gave me a backup, and we, you know, just generally shot the shit. So he was actually the guy in charge of my case. Later, we found out, wrote a probable cause statement for the arrest of the kid that I shot. And in the statement said exactly what I said from day one. I made a traffic stop. I opened the door. He tried to run me down. I shot in defense of my life. I feared that I was going to get killed. I was trying to stop him. And the guy fled the scene. Uh, So they charged him with attempted murder of a cop, felony fleeing, DUI, um, no insurance, all of those things. Not only that, but he had fled, tried to ram sheriff's deputies in checkpoints and stuff like that. And yet that probable cause statement was removed from the file. And instead... And, uh, by the way, he was relieved of the assignment. Then instead... They took him off the they case. They took him off the case. Then instead, Detective Sergeant Jerry Mendez, the whitewasher, he now takes the case as the homicide sergeant, and he writes a probable cause statement that is nothing close to the facts. He writes one that basically says, I made a traffic stop, the guy wouldn't stop, and I just unloaded on him as he was driving away. There was no threat to my safety. I was never hit by the car. All of these factors. And they cite a crime lab report that stated that the evidence showed that the bullets were fired from a high point to a low, meaning I was standing up in a full upright position, shooting at a vehicle as it was driving away. Well, the problem with all of that, of course, was once we saw the vehicle, the bullets were fired from a 30 to 60 degree low to high. And um, I think 20 inches or 18 inches was like the highest point a bullet had struck, other than the two shooting from the roof area. And that they were on the far left side of the vehicle, the casings, the glass, my vehicle were all on the furthest right side of the vehicle, which means I, there was no physical way I could have shot the vehicle in, the, in his left side when all the casings and glass were on the right-hand side of the vehicle. So if, if the bullet holes were on the right side, then they could have made a case, couldn't make it. So we asked for that crime report, never got it. Later found one from the state that was hidden from us that said that I was the victim and justified, and the facts were consistent. So basically what happened is we went to trial. We went through the legal process. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't talk to anyone. Is this the trial for what they're charging you with, the attempted yes. murder? Yes. Okay. So, so you end up going to trial Well, for I it. was two weeks from the actual trial, but we okay. had all of these, like had a preliminary hearing and discovery. And so what happened was we put this kid on the stand and uh, he tells the truth. And it just blows everyone away in the courtroom. Oh, the, ki- the kid, kid that was shot. kid, yeah. That ran away. That ran away, tells the truth. Really? So he gets up there, and he's on the stand. And generally, the attorneys weren't, would never ask the questions. But uh, my attorney was just curious to see what his side of the story was. 
And he basically says, I made the stop. He was looking at a way to get away. When I opened the door, he decided to throw it in reverse and run me down. He basically said, I didn't care if I killed the fucker. I just wanted to get away. I didn't want to go back to jail. Then he says that he originally thought because I was hanging on the car that I was punching him in the face, but then later realized that I'd actually shot him. So that's how close I was to him. Oh. So that just, that just broke apart the whole case that the city had put together and the county had put together. And the judge, uh, Ernie Jones, just sat there and didn't know what to say. So my attorney moved to dismiss. The county, despite all that, the prosecutor's office decided to fight it, and the judge allowed it to go to trial. And so we started moving down the road to trial and um what would be the point of that the kid already just admitted and backed everything up just to put you through more hell yeah i think um because at the same time the police department was still talking to me trying to get me to take a deal i had the the uh, peace officer standards and training guys calling me talking to me i recorded all of those conversations they're like come on dude just take a deal take a deal take one for the team it'll all go away just you know just take something right because now everybody was embarrassed and the Olympic scandal had just broken. Oh. And so now the city, was, <laughs> the city was under fire, being accused by a cop of being corrupt, mm-hmm. bringing out all this stuff. And um, they, their incentive was to keep me dirty right. long enough. And then they were hoping I'd take a deal. Yeah. I mean, they weren't expecting this Australian kid. You know, no family here. I mean, I had six kids and married. But, you know, no family, siblings, parents here. They're all in Australia. You know, thinking maybe he just doesn't understand the Constitution. He doesn't have the support base. This guy's just going to cave. Right. Which is, you know, kind of what they want. Right. Which is, you know, kind of what they want. And I, I was just more determined to fight it out. So, basically, we filed a series of motions we got the vehicle, we got the crime lab reports. I ended up getting statements the kid made in the hospital and in the jail that were all consistent with what he testified in court and they all buried that stuff. So so they hid it, they didn't? They just buried it all. And so basically what happened is one day this prosecutor, Ernie Jones, to his credit, calls up my attorney, Lonnie Delant, who's a former cop and, and um, federal agent, and just says, hey, this is, this is a bad case. We're, we're, not, we're not prosecuting. We're going to dismiss. And well, Lonnie says, um, this is the attorney, my attorney, says, well, you're not dismissing the case because then if you dismiss it from the prosecutor's side, Rob gets stuck with all the attorney's fees. But if you guys accept the motion that we've already filed, then the city has to indemnify him and pay for all that. Oh, good. So that's basically what happened is Lonnie resubmitted the motion to dismiss and Lonnie Deland, uh, Lonnie Deland submitted that, and then Ernie Jones, the prosecutor, signed off on it. The judge signed it that day. And I understand that uh, people were in the administration were in transit, being caught off guard at the, ho- at the airport, being told that the case had been thrown out. Um, the DA came out and said, I was justified. Uh, the facts indicate that I was justified in the shooting, so now I'm clean. Right. And, but the first thing I do is I hold a press conference and I just obliterate the police department on corruption. I call for the FBI. I call for everyone. These guys are corrupt. They lied. They did all this stuff. And then I get a call. I get told I'm being reinstated to the police department. So this is uh, my buddy Roy Wasden calls me. He says, you're going to get reinstated. So shut your mouth. Stop talking it up. Just let it whatever. And then they gave me a letter saying I was justified in the shooting and that I would be returned to work on condition 
that I basically don't pursue any type of action against the city. So then I get called to a meeting with Mac Canol, who was the acting chief, because Ruben Ortega got fired by Didi Cordini before she left. Oh, he did. Yeah, he did. So, <laughs> so anyway, I, I get I get told that uh, I'm coming back. They're probably going to bring me back. It was I think it was November, mid November. The case got tossed. So I went through this prosecution process from April to November, mm. and then um, I get told I'm coming back. They're just working out the details and. In the meantime, Matt Canal wants me to, to meet with him. So I actually go to the office, and yes, once again, these cops aren't rocket scientists. I record these conversations. So, is Matt Canal, is he a friendly, I guess? No, I mean, he, they're, he, they ended up all being dirty because they all okay. lied through their teeth mm. to save their own okay. careers, right? Okay. So in the end, there were no friends. So, so in, he's basically just trying to shut you up. He's he, just he trying to shut you, me down. Okay. So I get in there, and he just says, look, we're going to bring you back. We want to bring you back, um, but you need to play ball. He says it's basically um, it's not in the public's interest. I've heard this multiple times. Yeah. And, and I, I just said, look, I get it. You guys want to clean house quietly. You don't want the public display. Um, so I'm cool as long as you take appropriate action against those involved. I go, they lied. They did all this stuff. And he goes, look, we'll promote you. We'll allow you to work anywhere. Where do you want to work? What do you want to do? And well, I'd gone through SWAT school. I'd passed SWAT school. I was asked to go to Motors. I'm like, just send me out to Metro SWAT and leave me the hell alone. And, you know, he's like, we can do all of that, but you have to just give up on your quest to get justice. It's not, not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because you've got, you've got people like Sergeant Mendez that are in their pocket. They're the whitewashers. They're the cleaners, the fixers. They can't fire these guys. As soon as they fire these guys, they'll turn on them. They'll be like, oh, yeah, that was a murder. We covered it up. Oh, oh. that's not the case. Yeah. So they have to keep them. So they have. And this is the nature of law enforcement. This is why law enforcement is so sticky. People don't cross the blue line because somebody's got something on you and they hold those cards. So now I'm being told it's not going to happen. And I said, I'm not going to back down. So then I get handed another letter. Mind you, I have the first letter. It's in my hand. It says I'm justified. I'm given a second letter that says I'm not justified. <laughs> but they do it under some rule. I don't know if it's a 402 or 409 or whatever. It's one of those 40 uh, low digits that says that stuff that's discussed in, in uh, negotiations uh, cannot be brought up in court. So now I'm holding two letters. One's justified. One's not. Are they just messing with you, basically? Yeah, so then, so then they reinstated me anyway under threat of termination. Okay. So they're like, well, you're coming back. But if you don't come back, you're going to get terminated for insubordination. But you have to come back and, be, and accept the not justified 20-day suspension without pay, a bunch of other things. And, oh, by the way, you're getting ordered to a fitness for duty evaluation to determine if you're psychologically fit to return to work. First of all, do you even want to go back at this point after you've seen what they can do? Fuck yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. it's an in-your-face. They, they took my badge away. Right. And I want my badge back. If I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave on my own terms. With your badge. So the principal. Okay, I can, I can respect that. And so when they throw all this next stuff at you, what's, what's going through your head now? Are you like, is it worth it? Is, are you weighing the options? Oh, I still think, uh, I still think the system will work in my favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hopeful that it is, so I just go along with it. You know, like, like my shooting, I, I don't think there's any issue to deal with. So I get returned to work, otherwise I get fired. I'm on light duty, so I'm doing telephonics in a, 
in a satellite location. Mm. I'm actually, you know, getting good merit ratings from my supervisors that, you know, say Rob's a hard worker, he's doing a good job. I actually get a lieutenant, Su Susan Neely, I think. No, not, no, her. Anyway, I, I get a lieutenant that um, comes to me and she's like, I got some stuff for you. So she takes me in her office and hands me attaboy commendations that they didn't give me. Oh. And she goes, I grabbed these and um, I want to let you know that I just wanted to make sure you got them, you know. Oh, that was nice. And then um, I'm, just doing my, I'm just doing my thing, my telephonics. And then I get ordered to go to the, meet with this doctor. And he's a psychologist that works for the city. So he's their hired gun. Okay. And um, I go in there and have a, a bunch of tests psychological evaluations and um and then he interviews me for about 20 30 minutes and i'm thinking we're all cool but he, he's questioning me about my allegations of corruption doesn't ask me about my shooting doesn't ask me how i feel do i feel bad is it disruptive to my family do i think i can function as a police officer or a human being uh going through such a critical incident nearly losing my life and having to you know shoot somebody doesn't ask me one of those questions it's primarily focused on attacking me for my allegations against the city on corruption so he's just one of the goons he's just one of the hired guns so i'm thinking i'm still good i'm still good no worries system yeah. will work so then i get this evaluation that comes down interesting thing is they send all the written stuff testing off to a third party off-site psychologist firm that analyzes it all and then comes back. Well, all of those reports come back and says there's no problem. Unbeknownst oh, to the psychiatrist, city gun, hired gun or whatever, he doesn't realize that I had a post-shooting evaluation before I could even come back to work. Mm -hmm. And I did that within two weeks of the shooting. And I was determined fit to return to work two weeks after. Even though I had physical issues, mm -hmm. my psychological issues were fine. And I actually had a letter for that. And then what he doesn't realize is before Salt Lake City, I hired or attempted to hire on with Highway Patrol, Salt Lake County Sheriffs. And there was a, a very extensive evaluation that was way more than 20 minutes mm -hmm. with a psychiatrist or psychologist firm out of L.A. that does specifically law enforcement. So I've had, had three pre-employment evaluations that cleared me psychologically fit to be a police officer. And then I had a post-shooting evaluation that cleared me. But somehow this doctor had come up with uh, access to personality disorder, which, by the way, if anybody knows about Elizabeth Smart and the, her kidnappers, that's what the state determined they had, the degree of psychosis that they had. Really? So, so he, they're saying that's you. That's me. <laughs> So access to personality disorder is, is something that comes up in as a juvenile, and you'll have a history of getting in trouble with law enforcement, not being able to get along with people. It's obvious. Okay. And any of my prior evaluations would have picked up on it like in a, in a second. And in fact, um, I actually had the same doctor of the state used to determine Wander Bozzi and Brian Mitchell, the kidnappers of Elizabeth Smart, had access to personality, and he just looked at it and goes, there ain't no way, you're a good cop, you're fine to go to work, and this doctor, this doctor was so far off and did such an inadequate evaluation, and so what ended up happening, a long story short on that, is I went to occupational licensing, and I asked for a review of this doctor's report, 
and his methods and inadequacies. So during the hearing, um, I actually, and I had two or three evaluations after with other doctors, all consistent, no problem. This guy is fine as a cop. He's probably somebody you want as a cop. I get to this panel hearing, and they had impaneled a group of doctor psychologists or whatever, and he, the doctor, Dr. McCann, admitted during the evaluation that he changed these findings at the direction of the city attorney. Are you kidding? Yep. So I actually, despite all the attorneys that wouldn't represent me on this case, because they all said, there's no way you're going to win, I won representing myself by just presenting the evidence. And the, the actual panel concluded that he lied and that he was guilty of malpractice malfeasance for not doing an adequate investigation. There was no way he could have come to that conclusion. There was no history. He didn't even interview like my employers, didn't interview my family. Uh, so anyway, I won that particular battle with the doctor, but it still didn't matter because I was fired for not being fit for duty. And so what they got to do was continue the, the game plan of this guy's now crazy oh. because this Mac Canole guy, the chief, at the time, decided he would make it public that I was not fit to return to duty, that there was some psychological concerns. And he did that in a public meeting to let everybody know. So then I became news fodder oh. as, a, as not only a dirty ex-cop, but a crazy ex-cop, which would total diminish, totally diminish any valid argument that I could have or any credibility that I would have in continuing my case against the police for corruption. But that's that particular story in a nutshell. Oh my gosh! Is there is there anything you can do when when they do go public and they just talk out of their ass, or you're just screwed? You just have to deal with it. Um, yeah. So the media controls it all. There's really, and the the city controls the the dialogue. I guess what what I ultimately did was I went to court. I went to civil service. I lost in all of it. In fact, I did go to the FBI. I went into the FBI, I'd set up a meeting, I took a box of evidence, I had tape recordings, I had all the statements. I actually had statements from some of the homicide investigators that said basically they were told it was a dirty shoot, that the crime lab was sent away, that they thought this was unusual. And I took all this to the FBI, um, I got escorted into a room, a female agent came out, wouldn't identify herself, wouldn't give me a business card listen to me give my dog and pony show for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I actually had a summary, like 30-page summary with a box of evidence, so it was a no-brainer. She refused to take it. Um, I got upset at that point, not too upset. I just said, look, you guys have to take it. I've come in here to make this complaint. I have the evidence. And she said no. And I go, who are you? I don't have to tell you. And I go, yeah, you do. So next, you know, another female FBI agent comes down. So now there's two of them. And I'm saying, what's your name? I don't have to tell you. Just give me your card and let's let me out of here. I'll take my evidence. And then they're like, we'll look into it. And I go, what are you going to look into if I have the evidence? Yeah. Well, we don't have to tell you that. And I, I'm like, well, how will I know you're investigating? Well, we don't have to tell you that either. And so I just, I leave pretty frustrated. So the next day I get on the phone. Now I've got the recorder gone. I call a FBI supervisor up named Al Sternacker. I got him on tape. I rehearsed this whole thing with him. I'm like, they wouldn't give me their names. They wouldn't take the evidence. They wouldn't tell me if they would look into it. They wouldn't tell me anything. 
oh, that's, that's nothing unusual about that. And I go, really? You really think there's nothing unusual about that? And he's like, yeah, no, nothing unusual about that. Well, what was unusual about that from the beginning is while I'm meeting with the FBI after trying to set this up for two weeks, I hear the receptionist behind the glass windows talking to who I later believed was Chief Mac Canole, meeting with the FBI man in charge in Salt Lake City while I'm meeting with the FBI. So I was like, how is it he's tipped off? I'm meeting. He's now meeting with the agent in charge. They're working on the Olympic Committee stuff together. You know, they're all buddy-buddy. And so I end up leaving there and frustrated. Like I said, I recorded a conversation the next day with the agent in charge, and I send a letter with a transcript and a recording off to uh, Janet Reno's office, and she was the Attorney General for the United States. And I actually sent some information I had from training, some legal statutes, some constitutional requirements by the FBI, and I said I satisfied all these. I'd had the training as a police officer. I know what they're required to do. And basically what happened is I get a letter back from the head of the FBI's public corruption civil division, and the guy's name was uh, Motzkowitz. And he just sends me a letter, but it goes to Paul Warner, who at the time was the U.S. attorney, And basically in the letter it says, you will investigate not only this officer's allegations, but now you need to investigate the FBI's conduct in the handling of this matter. So I call him, I talk to him. This is Motzkowitz. They're telling me that they're moving forward. So months and months go by, probably six months go by, and I'm not hearing anything. And I do get all these letters, so I know something's happening. Then I call Motzkowitz's office, And he's not there, but I talked to his assistant, and she's like, let me get on the computer. She gets on the computer, looks up the case. Oh, the case is closed. I go, how's the case closed? Uh, I'm like, the FBI, U.S. attorney, nobody called me. Not one phone call. Not one piece of evidence has left my possession. What case? You know, what's the basis for for the dropping the case? And she said, no evidence. And so the case gets buried. Long story short on that one, fast forward, I'm in federal court, and now Paul Warner, the former, former U.S. attorney, is now a magistrate judge in the federal court, and guess whose case he's got involvement in? Mine. Yours. So between that time and the time that I'm in federal court with Paul Warner, I went to a state grand jury. So a state grand jury is five sitting judges, they're active judges, and they hold these panels a few times a year in different places, and you put your case forward. They decide whether the judges will hear it. Well, the judges heard my case, and they actually wrote a letter that was pretty scathing. It stated that I was wrongfully charged in an officer-involved shooting and that there was sufficient evidence to warrant a criminal investigation into the police department, the district attorney, for obstruction, evidence tampering, concealing, falsifying reports, et cetera, et cetera, And it was signed by the presiding judge. It was Judge Stanton Taylor. I had that. And I submitted it into evidence because I was getting totally cleaned up in federal court. They weren't letting any evidence in. They were calling me scandalous. They didn't want to hear it. I was told by a number of people that never hear the light of day. It's not in the public's interest. So now this Paul Warner's involved. They put it all under seal, all the evidence, grand jury stuff. The city actually argued that I fabricated that grand jury letter and everything. 
because the nature of secret nature grand juries, right? So you go to the grand jury, are they going to admit it, deny it, whatever? So Paul Warner puts all this stuff under seal and then throws my case out. How was he allowed to hear the case in the first place? I, I, we argued that. We argued the conflict. We argued yeah. everything. The, the powers that be in the state of Utah, I believe from the very beginning, I was told by not just the courts. I was told by investigators with the state. I was told by commissioners in the state. And I was told by attorney generals. I, I got told when this grand jury stuff went to the AG's office, I got a call for breakfast from the attorney general. Rob's not in the public's interest, just need to let it go. Um, this, this will diminish public trust in law enforcement, we'll take care of it. I got a call from a deputy commissioner saying that Governor Levitt didn't want me to really talk about it. They'll see what they can do to help me. Just please don't talk to the press, don't embarrass us. We got the Olympics, all that stuff. So. They just, they just buried me every which way. Oh. And so after that got tossed out, I went back to a grand jury again. And the interesting part about it is the clerk, the administrative um, secretariat for the third district court was the grand jury secretariat. And I called him. And now he's the clerk of the federal court, right? So I call him. I'm like, hey, uh, it's Mark Jones is his name. And I'm just like, Mark. You know what they did to me? And he goes, oh, yeah, dude, you got so screwed. You got so screwed. You know, there's a, there's a new grand jury panel. Maybe you should go to that grand jury. He goes, we believed in you. The evidence was in your favor. He's like, I can't do much for you. I'm the clerk of the federal court, but you can go to the new grand jury. And about the same time, I ran into a judge named Robert Hilder who was sat on that first panel, and I was standing at a crosswalk, walk, and he's an Australian too, by the way. Oh. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, Rob, you got screwed. They really fucked you over. Um, you should push the issue and go to the new grand jury. So I applied for the new grand jury, submitted new evidence, um, stuff that I hadn't had before, which was kind of alarming, really alarming stuff. Uh, and I went and appeared before that grand jury. So this is five new judges. These guys sit on the court every day, hear evidence, weigh probable cause, sentence people. I present the old evidence and now new evidence, statements from people that have since come forward. Uh, I found one letter that you might find interest, interesting enough is I went to the state and wanted my file, my investigative file, because I had this Joe Zadunich who was the state investigator and he was threatening me kind of a roundabout about way that I'd never work in law enforcement again if I didn't play ball, that I needed to take something to appease the city. And I'm like, dude, you're an agent for the city. This is not how it works. So I ended up going to the commissioner who was Flowers at the time. I know there's a lot of players, but yeah. this commissioner Flowers, I call him and I say, look, since when does the city of the state become an agent for the city where they're trying to suppress truth and evidence and screw with my, my career to appease their friends behind the blue wall? Right. And um, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. And I said, look, this investigator is a dunage. He told me that he takes his orders from you or the governor. He only answers to two people. So is it you or is it the governor? And anyway, I leaked some of that information. Then the newspaper did a, some kind of a story like officer caught in catch 22. Like, I can't get a job until I'm cleared. I can't be cleared until I get a job. So they had all these protocols in place to just keep me out 
So a little time goes by, and I get a call from uh, Verdi White, who is a deputy director of public safety, but he's also the Homeland Security Director for the state. Okay. Personal friend of Levitt's, personal friend of mine for 15, 16 years. So he calls me up and says, Governor Leverett wants to fire Commissioner Dearden. What do you have on him? And I said, oh, I've got this recording and I've got statements from the senior investigator that says he was either taking orders from the commissioner or the governor. And the commissioner claims he wasn't doing anything inappropriate. So therefore, he's fingering the governor as being the one that I should go after. So a couple of weeks goes by, and then I get a call from Verdi White, and he said, I'm just letting you know, um, Governor Levitt fired Commissioner Dearden. Thank you very much. And then I get a call from Post and a letter that says, I am cleared to return to law enforcement, that my shooting was found justified, I was dismissed at trial, all of those nice, warm stuff. Yeah. Um, but still, they went on to blacklist me from working in law enforcement. Anyway, they backdoored me on any time I applied. Uh, I did go to the Tenth Circuit on that after we found that the state was keeping secret files on officers who did similar things to me, try to raise issues and bring down corruption, and that these were secret files. They were called miscellaneous, and they would keep them aside. So any agency, so if the sheriff's office wanted to hire me, um, they would then turn around and um, say, hey, you know, I can't really tell you this, but do not hire this guy. So the Tenth Circuit actually ruled on that case and said, oh, they didn't know. They didn't know keeping secret files and, and deep-sixing employment opportunities for officers. And there was, there was a half a dozen or more officers in similar boats to me. Um, but they said from here on out, in the future, if you do it, then he has a case to go after you for blacklisting. But, but at that point in time, you're done. You're out. So anyway, I get this grand jury letter, the second one. I send it to Mark Jones, the clerk of the federal court, and Judge Kimball, who's the federal presiding judge of the case. And I say, here it is. You guys dismissed my case because there's no evidence. Said I lied about the grand jury. Five new judges. I just want to know if I go back to court to bring this case back because of misconduct, are you going to take the case? Or as you threatened, the court threatened me, I would get stuck with the city's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of legal fees for being litigious. And he just resent me a letter back and said, hey, I can't give you legal advice. You do as you think is right. And at that point in time, I was already five, 600000 in debt. Oh, and from legal fees. Yeah, legal fees. Oh. And my attorney actually got disbarred over it for pushing the issue. A special court convened by Mr. Warner the magistrate judge, outside of the state bar, which never happens, he gets a bunch of judges together in the federal court. They hold a hearing and recommend to the state bar that they disbar this attorney. If you want to talk about corruption, this is corruption going all up and down in the state of Utah. Yeah. Because the powers that be, and I don't want to say it's all the Mormon church, but uh there is a lot at stake in Utah with reputation. They do hold a great deal of power. Um, I can tell you stories about getting letters from uh, a James E. Faust, who was one of the church leaders, telling me to keep fighting for the truth. I could tell you times I got pulled in to, to meet with church leaders where they wanted me to dig up dirt on Rocky Anderson, the mayor of the city who was trying to take away uh, the, the plaza between the temple and uh, the church office building, and they wanted me to dig up dirt on him. They could use that to 
help them in their fa- I mean, some of the things that happen in this town are beyond belief, but that's the nature of it. So in the end, in that regard, I got nowhere right. personally, except I was cleared, kind of, even though I've got the documents to prove it all. Um, later, the FBI came to me um, and told me that this particular doctor, McCann, had done this to several officers after me and that he had lost his medical license. Okay. And so they told me that everything's not in vain, Rob, but anyway. So. Yeah, a little moral victory at least. Yeah, so I, I get, you know, I, I did have a checklist. I must admit I had a hit list, and it was not like a physical hit list. It was... I'm, I'm going to pay attention to you. I could tell you one story. Somebody calls me and says this, uh, there's a Chief Shelton. I didn't really have any dealings with Chief Shelton, except he was the guy I went to when, um, when I was the movie coordinator. And I was, working on a, I was working on a Stephen Baldwin movie. I actually was working on two different ones with Bal- two different Baldwin brothers at the same time. Oh, wow. But I went to the chief and I just said, hey, you know, they're, they're filming this as if it was in Colorado. Can't we do it in Salt Lake City? And I said, I'll get a script. So I got the script from the production company. I sold them on the idea. I said, let's do Salt Lake City. I'll let you, I'll let you use Salt Lake City badges, uniforms. We'll get decals for you. I'll even bring some real cops in. We like do SWAT stuff and canines and we'll do all that. And, oh, yeah. and you guys can make this about Salt Lake City. And so it took a little bit of convincing with this uh, Chief Shelton. And he agreed. So oh. I, I actually got Salt Lake City badges. They got to use the uniforms. We got SWAT guys. I actually got to act in it. I got to do a whole bunch of things. So, wow, that's awesome. Um, anyway, and that was pretty successful. Uh, and then that was really the only dealing I had with Shelton. So then I'm in civil service, and he's testifying against me, saying that, oh, we're trained as police officers that you fire one round, then you lower your weapon and assess the situation before firing any other rounds. Really? And we sat there and we're like, where did that come from? <laughs> right. It's like I had the state. I actually had the state expert that teaches at post that was the actual chief criminal um, officer for the attorney general's office testify on my behalf that everything I did was right, was in policy, I was justified, and no, we don't shoot one round and then pull your, put your gun down and just think, is he going to shoot back? Is there really a problem? <laughs> None of that. So he testified against me, and the, the fact that all the chiefs were there testifying against me, and it was such a political mess civil service just threw my case out they didn't they didn't say it was not concluded they threw my case out saying i wasn't cooperating some some bogus political administrative reasoning so anyway that gets that gets tossed out but then now i get a call from an officer that says oh hey do you know uh shelton's gonna be chief of murray city police department he just got a job and i'm like really and they're like yeah but there's something you should know about it I go, what? And he's like, oh, he's got, he's got sex harassment complaints, inappropriate conduct with his administrative assistant. And he was allowed to resign or retire and take this position so nobody would find out. So what I did, you know, with my little checklist, and I have got all of them, by the way. Um, oh, no. Oh, I've got all. It's a long list. I've got all of them. So I, I hit this, uh, this one Shelton guy, and I call the city council. And I go, you need to be aware that this chief is resigning under a cloud of sexual harassment. It's probably not in your best interest. Well, they just blew me off. 
they blew me off. So I'm like, okay, screw they just you. Didn't want to know. I called them. I called the media. I'm like, here you go. And oh, by the way, this is her name and her phone number. So you might want to call her and ask her about how he's departing the police department. So it became public. So all of a sudden, Murray City rescinds the offer for him to be chief. Good. And then he tries to go back to Salt Lake City. Well, now they can't take him back because now it's out. So he gets terminated. And then I heard he was driving a Brinks armored car for 10 bucks an hour, and I was pretty happy about that. He got what was coming. Definitely, he should not be a cop. Oh, unbelievable. You've even had more, like, as if that's not enough. Did you help crack the McKenzie... Uh, how do you say the last name? Lewick. Lewick. Yeah. yeah. Like you were the guy that helped crack that, right? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I, I did a couple of interviews here locally and I put my theory out there about what had happened, what I had personally discovered, who the suspect possibly was, where she met him, timelines, everything. And um, the local news wouldn't run it. The cops never called me back. And then um, I, think, I think it was uh, Inside Edition picked up on the story, and they did a satellite interview with me. Um, but I put it all out there, but they didn't, they didn't run it all. They just you know, said, oh, it's a local PI has a theory about this and that, and, and, but didn't really put the info out there that right. it was, in, that it was uh, seeking arrangements. And this was the day that she was last on it at this particular hour, right before she got on the plane, and she met the guy in the park because he was familiar with that area, and he was most likely going to murder her. And why was he familiar? He lived in that apartment complex across the street from the park, and that's why he met her up there and all this. I, I mean, I had all this put together. So anyway, Inside Edition runs with it and they actually go public with all of this stuff. Then I start getting the, the city local media call me and uh, I think Nick McGirt from Channel 4 was the one that ran the first story. Mm -hmm. Then he actually decided, oh, let's just do it. So he ran my theory, which turns out now that it's all done to be exactly what happened. All the, all the information was, was pretty spot on. Wow. And, um, and then I did Dateline. I did CNN. I did a whole bunch of things. And I think that's the one I saw was Dateline. Yeah. So, uh, and they just did a follow-up story. They called me and did a follow-up just a couple months ago because they, uh, they just you know, said that you know, without you, I, they would have got it. Like, I, I know we make jokes as cops that you know, unless somebody comes into the station and confesses, they generally don't get their guy. Uh, it's either that or a patrolman that stumbles onto somebody with a murder weapon in the trunk of their car. Um, much like the Elizabeth Smart case where they had put Richard Reese in prison saying, we got our guy, he dies of a brain embolism. And then they come out publicly and say, we'll never find her body, but we got our guy. Well, lo and behold, nine months later, she's walking around in Sandy City with Wander Bozzi and Brian Mitchell <laughs> yeah, very well alive. That's right. But that's the nature of law enforcement, and oh yeah, by the way, the same guys on the Christiansen case, the very same guys on the AT&T case, the same guys on my case, the same guys on the Elizabeth Smart case. These are all the same foolish detectives that are so fixated on a path that cannot be told anything different. But this goes back 20 years. This goes 20, 30 years back, and it is a pattern in Salt Lake City, 
goes back to uh, strong Gallegos homicides from 20-something years ago where some street cop solves the whole thing, but they go after somebody else. They fire the cop for interfering in a homicide investigation. Are you kidding? And only now, recently, coming to light because of... Uh, I worked on that about 20 years ago with a guy named Frank Hattonwood, who was the cop that got fired. And then I was working with uh, Jason Jensen, who was a paralegal back then, and he's gone on. He's a PI, but he also is one of the board members of the Cold Case Coalition because of his awesome work. They're putting all the dots together, and it turns out the murder weapon was a, was a cop's gun that was stolen out of a police car and disappeared out of evidence and all of these corrupt things that were happening in Salt Lake City. And, but, but these are the same players that were involved in the Susan Powell case, that were involved in all these high-profile cases. Um, I got pulled off the desk in, uh, I think it was Channel 2 or Channel 4, I got pulled off the desk doing interviews on the Susan Powell case because when they said they found her body, her remains, I said, bullshit. Yeah. Um, that is not it. What they're doing is trying to force his hand because they don't have any evidence. By creating evidence that doesn't exist, they watch, wait, see what he does. If he goes to the body to see if they found it. Um, and I cautioned him. I said... Let me tell you what happens when you do this. You run the risk of pushing somebody in a corner. He could be very well innocent. Uh, and then he takes matters into his own hands. And what did he do? He killed his children, blew himself yeah. up. Well, I actually get called off the desk after about two or three hours of interviews doing this case. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the producer comes out quietly. Rob, Rob, get down, get down. We're done. We're done. I'm like, oh, somebody at the city made a call get this guy off the desk. Um, but yeah, I was right. They didn't have any evidence, none at all. They pushed the guy to the limit and he ended up killing himself and his children. And these guys, there are so many good cops out there. This particular group, bad, bad yeah. news. And they've had bad case after bad case and a pattern of doing this kind of stuff. And these were the guys that were taking care of me, which is why they pretty much stayed there until their careers were over. Mm. And I, you know, I don't, I'll say whatever I say. Uh, I have no problem saying it. I have no problem saying the names right. and saying what they did. That's, that was that case. And then obviously the Mackenzie Lewis case, I was interviewed on the Daybells too. Um, oh, the last, Idaho. Yeah. Right? Last February I was interviewed by the Daybells and I stated right at the beginning that this is religious cult motivated. There are religious undertones here that these are fanatical fundamentalist Mormon breakaways, last day doomsday people. And that I, I believe that this had to do with some type of ritualistic abuse where they took a life, sacrificed a life. And I did those interviews. And I, I, I challenged those news stations that did those interviews mm -hmm. to play that. Because I said it, yeah. and they wouldn't play it. They wouldn't play my theory. They just kind of ran it out, ran it out. And now, here we are all this time later, right? and it's exactly what it was. Really? Exactly. And I know about it, and the reason I know about it is when I was at BYU, I was in the religion department. Mm -hmm. I was in the sociology and psychology department. I aided to a bunch of religion professors, and there were things that were happening 
back in the 90s, early 90s with ritualistic abuse. And what was happening was that this was this kind of new age healing. There are all these alternative um, psychological things that were working. They actually were working on people, but there were a lot of hypnotherapists coming out and I'm, I'm kind of like peeling the onion back and finding some type of ritualistic abuse that had taken place with these people when they were children, which is why they got all these problems now. Some of it true, some of it in the frenzy of trying to come up with stuff were like basically implanted memories or bad therapists or whatever, but it was happening. And I was aware of it because I was at BYU and I, I was a teacher's aide to four or five of the most prominent professors there. Uh, when I was at BYU, I was 28. So I was a little bit older, more mature. Right. I was actively involved in Mormon church, had leadership positions. So I was kind of in the know and I had some respect with, with these guys. Um, and so I was giving them information. We were talking about it. And then a church authority that is a, they, he's a presiding bishopric member. So there's three of them. Mm -hmm. There's a prophet and the, the leaders of the church. Well, there's these bishops and there's presiding bishops that are lifelong callings. Well, this one guy named Glenn Pace came and spoke at BYU, and he was talking about some things. And I approached him, and, you know, there's 20,000 people in the auditorium, but I approached him. We got talking. I said, hey, I'm working over here. I'm looking at these alternative healing therapies, and mm -hmm. I'm discovering a bunch of things. And um, I'm kind of concerned that there's some ritualistic stuff going on in the church, not sanctioned by the church, but it's kind of these factions that are in there. And he just looked at me and he started telling me some stuff. And he goes, I need you to come meet with me. So I ended up, you know, out of 20,000 people being asked to his office. So I went up to the church office in Salt Lake. And we developed a friendship. But it was over sharing information and talking about stuff. So I knew where he was going. But he was actually tasked by the church leadership at the time to investigate because it started becoming a little bit alarming. And let me just say, without being disrespectful to the Mormon church and their rituals, back in the day, they used to, in their temple ceremonies, they would do symbolic death penalties. And they were, there were several of them uh, that you would make a promise or a covenant, and, it, and it's symbolic, but they would make a promise or a covenant not to real, reveal certain aspects of the ceremony, but rather than do that, they would suffer their life to be taken. So they would do these ritualistic movements that would symbolize different ways in which you would die. And then at the altar, you would, you would get in a prayer circle and you would say a prayer or chant, and it was in Aramaic. But the translation of the Aramaic was nothing nefarious. It was all you know, about God listening to their prayers. But obviously, if you're listening to it, you're thinking, holy crap, what is this I'm listening to? Yeah. So what was happening during this uh, 90, 91, 92, 3 period or whatever is these suppressed memories or implanted memories were being triggered during a temple ceremony where they were doing these things. And so these oh. people that had either had a memory surface through hypnotherapy or had them implanted would literally go hysterical in the ceremony, start frailing around on the ground. Oh, and weird. then when this ritualistic abuse stuff came out, the church decided they would remove those penalties and take the Aramaic out of there. So it was a deliberate on their part to just make it all go away. Yeah. So Glenn Pace had done an initial report, and I did get a copy of the report, and he sent it to Gordon B. Hinckley, who was the prophet, 
And in it, he stated that his investigation had determined that this was happening in the church, up to general authorities in the church, high members of the church, and that there was evidence to investigate that it was happening in churches and temples and that there were a number of people engaging in this activity. Well, as soon as that went public, because somebody intercepted the memo and made mm -hmm. it public, Glenn Pace was removed as a presiding bishopric member. And remember, this is a lifelong calling. You die out of this position. And he was sent to Australia again, another Australian experience, <laughs> to be a mission president in Sydney for three years. So he's three years in Australia, out of sight, out of mind, and removed from any involvement. Well, what happened then was there was enough interest in the media, and you can look it up, there was enough interest in the media that the attorney general's office was basically had to do an investigation. So an investigation commenced, never concluded, and a guy named Ted Davis, who was one of my neighbors and somebody I knew, was the attorney general investigator assigned to investigate. Well, after Glenn Pace goes away, it dies a natural death, and the AG's office did nothing, and I believe, and I truly believe the church buried it. It's embarrassing. Many, many people in leadership today will deny that they ever did the penalties or ever did Aramaic, but it's, it's all documented in videos that you can find on the net. Oh, uh, wow. There's, there's enough information out there. It, it did. I participated in it. I was present when it was happening. So, so you did them. You I was were there. there. I was there. So with the daybells, I was alerted to that and my experience with looking into, you know, like the LeBarons and the fundamentalists and they had these blood oath murders and there's mm. still people in prison today in Utah for doing it. So I, oh. I, I took the leap and just said, based on what I'm hearing about this guy and this family, this guy's a doomsdayer. He thinks he's going to be a part of the second coming of Jesus and that I'm more likely convinced that there is some sacrifice taking place here uh, that took the symbolic gesture to the reality, and that's the nature of the delusional. So nobody really wanted to run that story uh, for obvious reasons. Right, but that's, a t yeah, but that's, tough. that's another one that was, that was kind of right on the money. Wow. They were doomsdayers, right? They thought that the kids were zombies? Is, am I getting yeah, that one possessed. right? Yeah, They thought they were possessed and all kinds of things, and, you know... You know, there's the old, there's old scriptures, I'm sure you can find them, you know, where you would sacrifice your children to show your love to your dedication to God. Oh. Or, you know, that if they were demonically possessed, the only way that you could fix that was to take their lives. And you believe in the afterlife, so you're just kind of releasing them. Um, all kinds of things. But um, wow. you know, that's, that's all of that, so... When you figure these out, when you figured out these cases, do you know... Like, how much of it do you know before you start investigating or you just start investigating and find the stuff and then you go oh all that yeah i just i just get into it like yeah. the mackenzie lewitt case that was a very unusual one because i did have some reporters call me asking me if i wanted to get involved and i i'm like yeah sure i i do but i was so busy i didn't mm. and then and some guy comes across to to my bar one night and reminds me that i'd actually met this girl Oh, wow. You know, weeks, oh, that's right. Weeks before, yeah. I'd actually met her. That's and, right. Um, at the bar or at a restaurant? At a bar, yeah, at a, at a bar. bar. Okay. And um, I'd met her at a bar, and she was telling me some of these things about seeking arrangements and some of the risky lifestyles that she had. And, yeah. and um, I don't know why people just look at me like the bishop. 
you know, they're a confessor, I'm the priest, and they got to confess. Um, or, you know, I'm just a PI, so I'm always the, the detective. Oh, right. And I, I, yeah. I just cautioned her, you know, that it's pretty risky, risky for her to do that kind of stuff. And I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, when asked to be involved in it by the media, I, I said yes, but I didn't really look at it. And then a friend of mine came to me one night and just said, remember that girl we met? That's her. She's the one that's missing. So oh I, I went, I left, I left the bar, went home, got on the internet, started doing searching, just found her profile within 40 minutes or so. I uh, confirmed a bunch of things on it, pictures or statements with consistent with what stuff she told me, looked up her Facebook, then went to where she was last active. And it was the night that she left from LA to come to Utah. Then I just started putting it all together. And so oh, wow. I immediately contacted the police. Didn't hear from them, by the way. Did not hear they from didn't them. Did back. not contact me at all. I, the only thing that I got out there was through the media. Mm. So, and then I got, you know, got tipped off um, that there was, they were doing a warrant on the house of Ajayi. I got tipped off where they were going, so I knew who lived there. Then I did the research back to find all the other connections. Uh, found that, you know, his book, He'd written a novel about murdering somebody and burning the body. Oh, and, right. and then I found uh, like a, a guy that was doing the construction and then the cleaning lady. And I set her up to do like interviews with the Inside Edition and Dateline. And all the things just started like falling into play. Right. Like what are the odds of that, that you meet this girl? Uh, stuff like this happens. Like you would not believe... The, the number of times where I meet someone or somebody comes to me, when I start working a case, somebody comes to me and mentions something. Like, there's, there's a big case, and I, I don't know if I even want to say it on, on the air because there's active in FBI involvement. Oh, now. okay. But, so that, but that happens. That so happens a lot. this is just nothing. Yeah, nothing. I, 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 never, I never get surprised at... Some of the stuff that just kind of drops in my lap. No kidding. And there's, there's another big thing that I wanted to ask you about.